All right, so we'll start off with some questions. All right, so first up, the primary uh, calcium loss from the SR is the primary cause of fatigue during short duration exercise. True or false? So that's interesting. Uh, this is one of the questions I asked at the end of the last uh, class meeting. So I guess the good news is more people got it right this time than the last time we met. So that's a positive. Uh, keep in mind that during short duration activity, the primary cause behind fatigue is the accumulation of inorganic phosphate and hydrogen ions. And then uh, inability to release calcium from the sarcoplasmic reticulum is the primary cause of muscle fatigue during long duration exercise. So next up, if an individual's Golgi tendon organ does not work, what uh, does that mean to the ability to exercise, to their ability to exercise? A, they will not be able to detect muscle length. B, they will not be able to detect muscle tent or tendon tension. C, they will not be able to control muscle force generation. Or D, some of the above are correct. So just to run through the answers here, uh, first off, um, the Golgi tendon organ senses muscle ten or tendon tension, not length. Uh, length is the muscle spindle. The, uh, so A is not correct. B, uh, they will not be able to take muscle or tendon tension. That is a correct answer. But uh, so is C, because the key to these uh, receptors is they allow the body to know what the state of the muscle is. And if you didn't have these receptors, the body essentially would not know how the muscle's contracting. So the Golgi tendon senses tension, the spindle senses length, and the information, the feedback information you get from those two structures, they allow the body to fine tune the way the muscle contracts. So in this case, the correct answer was uh, some of these. So, and some of these being specifically uh, option B and option C.
All right, so next up, you were training to run a marathon. In the lab, we measure your muscle tissue before and after training. Which of the following effects would you expect? A, an increase in fast twitch fiber number. B, a decrease in slow twitch fiber size. C, an increase in slow and intermediate fiber size. And D, or D, none of the above. Okay, um, so A, uh, if we're talking about fast twitch fibers, uh, most likely what we're referring to is uh, anaerobic type of training. That's the muscle, the key fiber type that would be involved. So uh, we pretty much know that would not be the case. Um, B, while it refers to slow twitch fibers, which is what we're interested in, it refers to a decrease in slow twitch fiber size which would effectively be what happens when you stop training. So if you were if you train for a period of time and then stop training, that's the response that you would have happen. C uh, essentially is the correct answer because uh, if you were training uh, essentially for an amer a marathon, that would be a high volume of aerobic type training, and you're going to get two key effects. You're going to enhance the properties of the slow twitch fibers that you already have, and you're going to also enhance the intermediate fibers so they resemble slow twitch fibers. And one way to, to assess that would be actually related to a, a, a physical change in the size of those fibers and uh, an increase in that size such that it's able to hold more intracellular contents. Alright, so we'll go ahead and get on with today's material, which is uh, neuromuscular adaptations to resistance training. And just to start with the usual overview, first we'll talk about the general facts and basic terms as they relate to uh, resistance training. We'll then talk about some basic program design considerations. We'll talk about the two key aspects of strength gains, so um, hyperplasia and hypertrophy. Oops, sorry about the purple. That says muscle soreness. We're going to talk about muscle soreness and what its role is in strength gains. And we're going to talk about two types of muscle soreness. We're going to talk about acute soreness, which is what you feel during the actual exercise and a few hours afterwards and delayed onset muscle soreness, which happens several days after the initial exercise session. We're going to wrap up talking about muscle atrophy and specifically looking at the effects of immobilization and um, probably more importantly, the effects of detraining. So if we start with some of the general facts associated with uh, neuromuscular adaptations to resistance training, what you'll see is that um, six months of resistance training can increase strength by up to 100% of uh, baseline levels. 
and with a node on up to 100%. And usually one of the things that dictates how much that increase will be is how untrained the person is starting out. And the more untrained somebody is when they start a resistance program, the greater percentage increase in strength they'll experience uh, as compared to somebody who's more trained. Interestingly, or, or not interestingly, based on the literature, uh, really if you look at the strength gains in young versus old individuals or men and women, the, at the relative percent gains in strength are about the same. So when I say percent gains, what I mean is looking at the absolute value you achieved at the end of the study or the end of the training period, the absolute value at the beginning of the period, and, and basically dividing the two to get a percent change. And when you look at percent change scores, uh, they're really pretty similar uh, regardless of the person's um, gender or age. Now, certainly if you look at absolute gains, uh, there are some differences in those, those different categories. The uh, unique thing about resistance exercise is resistance exercise is the only exercise stimulus that can be applied to the body that the body can adapt to with one exposure. So what do I mean by that? Okay, well, last time we talked a, we talked a little bit about um, aerobic adaptations to training, and we'll talk about some more aerobic adaptations in the next couple of weeks. But um, if, you, if you exercise aerobically right now, you know that probably the first time that uh, you went and exercised, it was pretty hard. And it was pretty hard for probably a couple of sessions or a couple of weeks. And then it started to get easier. And that's because that type of exercise stimulus requires multiple sessions in order to build up an adaptation. Muscle exercises are completely different. So if you don't do resistance exercise training now, uh, you can prove this point pretty easily. What you do is you go over to the gym and you do a really heavy bout of resistance exercise. And uh, essentially what will happen is several days after that exercise session, you'll feel really sore. Uh, you'll have a lot of muscle soreness uh, depending on the amount of weight that you lifted. And then if you, after you recover from that soreness, if you did absolutely nothing for a month, nothing, no exercise at all, you could go back to the gym, you could exercise it the exact same way you did before, and you'd have virtually no soreness afterwards. And that's because the body can adapt to that stimulus of damage after being exposed only one time. And it's an adaptation that carries over for a long period of time. So uh, there's a little bit of uh, data that suggests that at the adaptation itself may be stable for up to eight, 8 or 12 weeks, meaning you could do a really damaging bout of exercise, and then you could not do anything for three months, come back and do the same exercise again, and uh, you would effectively have an adaptation to that. Now, going to the gym and doing a strenuous bout of resistance exercise is one way to achieve that soreness. The uh, other way to achieve the soreness is the way that uh, we usually do it in the lab. And in the lab, we have a machine where we could, for instance, if we wanted to damage your bicep muscle, which that's usually the muscle of choice because uh, most people don't walk around on their hands and feet during the day, so there's a little chance you're going to use uh, your bicep very much, especially if you're inactive. And usually what we do is ask you if you're right or left-handed, and if you say you're right-handed, we would hook your left arm up to the machine 
and the machine would apply a force to uh, your arm during the lengthening phase. So essentially if the muscle is getting caught in things. Uh, if you were uh, like this during the extension of your elbow, this phase from here to full extension, that's the e eccentric phase of the muscle contraction. That's when you do the most damage to the muscle. And the machine would ex essentially apply a force to your muscle which it knows that you, your arm cannot resist and uh, you instruct the individual to resist that force and you do that about 20 to 25 times uh, by the 24th or 25th rep uh, there's pretty much uh, no chance you're going to be able to hardly even resist that and uh, with that kind of stimulus effectively what you'll see is for three or four or five days after that stimulus you probably will not be able to straighten your arm uh, if, if successful you won't be able to straighten your arm in most cases um, I, I can speak from experience because, uh, let's see, I've done that to myself probably 15 times or so or more. And uh, if you can get a really good stimulus, you won't even be able to straighten your arm past about like that for five days, um, which is another good reason to do the arm you don't normally use. Uh, but uh, so that's the way we, we do muscle damage in uh, the lab. In some cases, some investigators like to use the quadriceps muscle to elicit damage. Uh, we usually don't do that because uh, if someone, even if they're inactive and don't exercise, they're probably still ambulatory on the lower extremity. And also if you cause an extreme amount of damage in the lower extremity, it's going to affect their ability to get around and uh, do their activities of daily living. <coughs> All right, so the bottom line is that resistance exercise is a stimulus the body can adapt to with one exposure. And we're going to talk a little bit more today at, uh, and kind of help you understand why that's the case. So some of the basic terms which go with uh, resistance training and muscle responses is first muscle strength. And muscle strength is defined as essentially the maximal amount of force that the muscle can lift or move. Um, in terms of um, quantifying strength, often you'll see this referred to as the 1RM or the one repetition max. And the one repetition maximum would be the maximum amount of weight that you can lift one time and not a single time more. Now, while the one rep max is a really good measure of uh, muscle strength, it's actually a very difficult measure to, to collect. So you may be sitting there saying, well, how could it be difficult to collect? You just go to the gym and you just keep increasing the weight till you can't lift it anymore. Well, that's the problem is you can't do that. In order for a one rep max to be considered um, correct or uh, valid, it should take you no more than three lifts to get to that value. So if you took someone in that's completely untrained and you really had no idea about how strong their muscle is, you would have to guess at where to start the weight at. And if you started too low, you'd have to increase it. And if it was still too low, you'd have to increase it again. And if that was too low, then you're just out of luck. So um, in, in terms of... Uh, designing exercise training programs, uh, typically uh, that's not the measurement of choice to quantify muscle strength. Uh, most times the way that you would want to quantify muscle strength in uh, an untrained individual is try to find a weight that you could put on the bar that they could lift uh, no more than 12 or 15 times. And then you can use that value and some equations that are available in the literature to back calculate what the one rep max would be. A second measurement of muscle responses is muscle power. 
And muscle power, muscle power, power, um, is essentially defined as how quickly you can move a force. The equation to calculate muscle power is the amount of force that you're moving times the distance that you need to move it and the time that you need to move it. Bless you. Okay, so a little bit different kind of measures. And uh, certainly there's different tools in the laboratory that can be used to assess these. Uh, sometimes the, a common test for muscle power is if you use the same machine that we use to, uh, to damage the muscle, you can actually set that up to do a muscle power test where you can put fixed amounts of resistance on there. You know the amount of distance that weight has to be moved, and then it can calculate how much time it took to move it. A third measurement or a third property of the muscle is what we refer to as muscle endurance. And muscle endurance is the ability to maintain near maximal muscle force. And one of the common tests that's um, used to determine muscle endurance is how many repetitions you can complete at some weight. Uh, and the weight is usually defined as something near uh, the one rep max or somewhere in that area. So if you follow professional sports at all, a really good example of uh, a muscle endurance test that's used uh, pretty often is at the NFL scouting combine. They, have, uh, they just rack the bar with 225 pounds and they just say, do it as many times as you can. And um, you have, uh, no, no offense to any kickers in the room, but you have some kickers that will go in there and they'll do that about three or four times. And then you have um, some of the, the big uh, power type of athletes on those teams It'll go in and do um, 50, 40, 50 reps at 225 without uh, much trouble. So, um, and that's a pretty good indication of A, the muscle is strong, but also the muscle has built up a considerable amount of endurance because it can maintain uh, the muscle force contractions for an extended period of time. And that ability to maintain endurance under those types of conditions speaks a lot to the metabolic properties of the muscle. And the more anaerobically trained that muscle is, the better that muscle does at dealing with the lactate production that will be associated with that type of muscle contraction. All right, so if you wanted to uh, basically design a resistance training program, what are some things that you would need to consider or include? The primary consideration is always what the target muscle or muscle groups is or are. So, for instance, if your primary objective is to increase the size or increase the strength or the endurance of the bicep muscle, the very best way to do that is to do bicep curls. Um, you wouldn't, obviously, if you were just doing bench press or something like that all the time, you wouldn't be uh, selectively enhancing those muscles, the, the biceps muscle. You'd be affecting other muscles in addition to the biceps muscles. So the first is what your targeted muscle groups are. A second is the intensity of the training. And the intensity of the training largely speaks to what your objective of the training is. And realistically, if your sole objective is 
only to increase muscle strength and not to affect anything else. The best way to set your intensity is to pick an intensity that's either 90, 95, 100% of, of one rep max and um, do three or four sets of two or three reps each. If your objective is to increase muscle endurance, you might drop the weight on down some, uh, 70 to 80% of the maximal effort, and you may try to do 10 to 12 repetitions per set with uh, three to two or three sets. Uh, there's, there's also, you know, as I said, there's some issues with trying to actually measure the one rep max. So if you're basing the intensity that you're selecting on this one rep max that you're not even sure is correct, um, there are some ways during a training program you can check to make sure that you're hitting the right target intensity. So for instance, if I took any of you to the, to the gym and um, I put a weight on the bar not knowing, if I had no clue what your one rep max is, and I put a, bar, a weight on the bar and I said, okay, do um, two sets of 10 repetitions, and you did that with no problem. And then I said, okay, do, do one more set and do as many repetitions as you can. And essentially, based on the number of repetitions that you do, I would know exactly how close the intensity I selected is to your one rep max. So on that last set, if you did 12, 15, 16 repetitions, the percentage I set was probably closer to 60% of your one rep max. If you can only do about eight to 10 repetitions, that intensity I chose was probably right around 80% of your one rep max. And if you do less than six repetitions, then that intensity I chose is probably closer to uh, 90 to 95% of your one rep max. So simply by using, uh, after a fixed number of sets, using a, a set to volitional fatigue, you can tell exactly how you set the one rep max. Also in terms of resistance training in general, it's pretty useful in a, in a program design to make your third set always one where you do as many reps as you can. Because if you're doing that and you're going along and for a couple of weeks you're only able to do eight or 10 reps on that last time, that means your resistance is set correctly. As you train, your muscle gets stronger, which means you need to increase the resistance. So after two or three weeks, if you do 15 repetitions on that, that last set, that basically means that the next time you lift, you need to increase the weight that you're lifting. Because the key to maximizing increases in muscle strength and muscle performance is to maximize what we call progressive overload. And if you're not overloading the muscle, you're not doing anything. A really good example is um, uh, before I came here, I worked, uh, a lot of my work I did was with the older adults and we, the building I worked in, the department I worked in, we had a fitness center that catered to older adults. And we had a lot of people from the community come in and join the club. And when they came in, we'd give them an initial uh, session where we'd test them all out, let them know where they're at, set up a basic program for them. And then uh, over the course of several years, we'd, we'd have these, sub these individuals participate in different research studies that we did. And what we found was um, there were some people that three years later were doing the exact same weights that we told them to, to do when they first joined the center. And when we actually went through and tested them out, they looked like somebody that was completely almost untrained. Because they weren't in untrained in terms of muscle strength because once the exercise wasn't hard anymore, they weren't challenging the body. And if you're not challenging the body, you're not going to get an, an adaptation. And it was always funny when we worked with these people because uh, when we looked at what they were doing, we said, oh, well, you actually need to be doing this weight. 
And when we change the weight, they say, wow, that really actually feels like I'm doing something now. And so it's probably because you weren't doing something before. Um, also, there we did a lot of research. Uh, we had a lot of our subjects that came in, especially from we did mostly older uh, women, and a lot of older women in that community, uh, they like to frequent the Curves facility in town. And what I can tell you about uh, what we know about those people is those people were um, actually, if it's possible, more unfit than people that did nothing. Um, so what I can tell you about that program, at least from what I understand about it, is that uh, there's no way to adjust the resistance on the exercises that they do. But um, that's at least what I understand. There's no resistance adjustment. So essentially, when you first start doing it, you'll get some uh, adaptation. Then after a while, you'll get nothing because there's no resistance. There's no way to make it harder uh, because there's no resistance adjustment. So um, that, that's the key is it doesn't really matter what kind of exercise you do. The key is that you're applying overload to the body. And if you're not challenging the body, if, you're not, if it's not hard, it's not doing anything. If uh, your objective is to make the muscle stronger or make the muscle uh, improve muscle endurance, if it is not hard when you're doing it, it is not doing anything. You might as well do nothing. Because in terms of the objective, it's not going to facilitate the objective that you want. A third factor to consider is the number of, oh, hold on just a second, hold that thought, um, is the number of reps per set. And again, this, uh, similar to what I mentioned just a second ago, this is going to be largely dependent on what the weight is that you choose. And um, pretty much based on the number of reps that you do, it's pretty easy to determine about what percentage of your one rep max you're actually exercising at. Yes, sir. So probably, I think, just so I understand correctly, you're asking about muscle strength gains because that's what's going to facilitate. So the, so the key difference is when you talk about muscle strength gains, the way the muscle gets stronger is you accumulate more um, sarcomeres. And the only way the muscle cell can accumulate more sarcomeres is to increase in size. And that's very different than if you talk about increasing muscle endurance. Because when you talk about muscle endurance, what you're talking about is changing the way the body supplies ATP or changing the way it uses ATP. And that's, that's a metabolic thing. And it's, it is related to muscle contraction, but it's a metabolic thing. Muscle strength is purely uh, how many cross-sectional interactions can I have between actin and myosin. So if that's your objective, the, the program should be high weight, low repetition. Um, ideally, weights that are close to the one rep max. So lots of heavy lifts, lots of heavy lifting. Um, the other thing you'll see is um, I try not to read fitness magazines because they usually just upset me. Um, except, uh, what was it? Because um, a couple of weeks ago, I got called to be, a, to be interviewed for some magazine called Oxygen Magazine, which I'd never heard of before. Until I looked it up, I was like, oh, it's a women's magazine. Interesting. Women's fitness magazine. But anyway, um, Mo the thing that I guess the thing that uh, irritates me about popular magazines like that is they lead you to believe if you don't do it this way, it's not going to work. And the reality is, for, at least from what I can tell you based on what the literature tells me, is that it doesn't matter what kind of program you do. If you apply overload to the muscle, you're going to get an adaptation. 
Uh, there's a lot of research that's been done in the past couple years looking at uh, these pyramid type of workouts. Uh, some of you may actually do those kinds of workouts uh, where you start off and you do uh, a set of 20 reps at a really low weight and then you do a set of 15 reps at a little higher weight and then 10 reps at a higher weight and blah, 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 all the way up till you get to some fifth set that has like three repetitions at a really high weight. Well, guess what? Uh, what the research tells us is if you want to increase muscle strength, you can basically take those first four sets and throw them in the garbage and just do the last set because that's the only one that makes any difference. And if you're wanting to improve your muscle endurance, you can throw the last four sets in the garbage and just use the first set and you'll get the exact same adaptation. Um, so basically save yourself a lot of time and just use uh, the effective stimulus. And again, I'm not, I'm not basing that on my personal opinion or anything like that. That is what the literature says. And if you don't believe me, you can definitely go and look it up because there's a lot of stuff that's been done with it. Yeah, yeah go, no, go ahead. Like as, the, as you do your heaviest weight first and then you decrease, your muscles are already so fatigued, it feels like you're doing the same way, the same amount. But you're not. I know you're not, <laughs> but it feels that way. So is there any advantages to doing it the opposite way versus the other way? It, it, well, it, depends, it depends on what your objective is. And to be honest, I'm not sure many people, that most people when they go to lift weights actually have an objective yeah. other than I want to lift weights. Um, <laughs> So, um, but if you really, I mean, if the objective is to get strong, to get increased muscle strength, then really only you need those low reps at the high weight. If your goal is to develop muscle endurance, then you need low rep or high reps at a lower weight. And that's, I mean, that's it. I mean, all the other stuff is really mean, of no value. Well, that's not the muscle that's tired, though. It's you that's tired. I, no, I'm, I'm being serious. There's, they've done, there's a lot of studies that have been done, and it's a psychological thing. You're not, the muscle is, the, the contractile properties of the muscle are fine. They're recovered. It's just that you perceive that it's difficult. Um, you can do all kinds of things. Um, you could actually give somebody a drink. If they really trust you as an expert, you could give them a drink and tell them that it's going to alleviate that symptom. And... Um, you could pretty much, yeah. And that, and that, the, the ability to do that suggests that it's not something that's physiological at the muscle. It's a psychological effect. Yeah. Based on your personal experience, for an untrained individual, what would you recommend him or, him or her increasing gradually as far as, you know, what they want to do, like strength training? What would your recommendation be for um, gradual increase? Well, I mean, the, the way we usually use resistance training in, in exercise studies that we've done in the past is we use the three-set method where it's two sets of 10 reps and a third set to failure. And that third set tells us whether or not our resistance is set in such a way that it's uh, eliciting uh, progressive overload. Hold that thought. Let's get um, way back in the back. Yep. Um, that's the idea. 
but uh, the reality is what we know about training is it's not really possible to do that in the same session. Now certainly if you broke it up over se separate sessions that's possible, but the, essentially what happens is if you said, I, well I'm doing pyramids because I'm going to get stronger and I'm going to increase my endurance. And I'll give you that they'll both increase, but they will not increase to the same level as if you just focus the program on one or the other. Now what you will see is some people, especially elite athletes, they'll mix in to their resistance training program. So they have uh, sessions during the week that are aimed at specifically strength development and other sessions during the week that are aimed specifically at endurance development. But in general, if you combine them into a single session, you get suboptimal improvements in both. Does that make sense? Yep. So, um, I guess, So, can't you just get just have basically higher reps so they'd be to where they would just get more instead of using the same weights, just do higher reps of the same weight to, I guess, fatigue or? You could, but um, the way that thing is designed with the top secret photos, you can probably see somewhere on the internet. Um, it has a hydraulic cylinder and uh, not to get too carried away with the properties of uh, gases and liquids in physics, but the way a hydraulic cylinder works is the faster that you make the fluids move, the less resistance there is. And so their plan when they have people train is they'll have these blocks of time, they'll say, okay, you're gonna do 30 seconds worth of knee extensions. And they'll say, speed up, when, you start, when it starts to feel easy, you should speed up. Well, if you speed up, it'll be even easier. And if it's barely any resistance being applied, you might have to do 80, 100, 120 repetitions to get a useful workout out of it. And uh, of course, that goes against what, they're, what they advertise because they advertise the, I think, the 20-minute workout. So theoretically, yeah, if you kept doing repetitions, eventually you could get some adaptation. Maybe. Yep. So for muscle hypertrophy, uh, can't you just increase the volume and still get the same results? Or not the same, but at least... What do you mean increase the volume? Do more reps, basically, like, uh, basically more sets and more reps? You could, yeah, I mean, yeah, certainly. There's there's different ways to do it, but, um, I mean, if uh, the most effective way is to high weight, low repetition. The reality is that in terms of uh, your health, long term, that's probably not the most effective way to train, but at least based on what we know about the literature, that is the most effective way to train. And interestingly, a lot of what we know about um, the way human muscle adapts to resistance training was um, collected using um, rodents as models. And you can actually train a mouse to do squats, believe it or not, and uh, lots of other things. So uh, it's, you can build these little lights into their cage and you can train them to raise up when they see a green light and go down when they see a red light. I'm, I'm serious, I'll bring some pictures. I've got, I have some pictures of it, so. Um, okay. All right, so the fourth consideration is the number of sets per workout. And again, all these things are highly dependent on one another. And sometimes that, uh, sometimes you'll see that uh, people say, oh, on Tuesdays I do my chest and my arms, and on Thursdays I do my back and my legs, because that 
Well, actually, probably if you ask them why they do that, you might get a, a long pause. Um, the reality is there's a couple reasons why it's useful to do that. One is uh, most people don't want to spend two hours at the gym for one session. That's probably the most common reason why those things are split up that way. The other thing is doing that amount of uh, repetitions without sufficient recovery time may lead to some fatigue during the exercise. And so there is some advantage to splitting those things up, but uh, again, based on what the data tells us, the data says that um, whether they're all together, whether they're all split up, you get the exact same type of adaptation. But again, from a convenience standpoint, uh, some people would prefer to split a two-hour session into two one-hour sessions versus two hours in one block. So what? Uh, so that's a little bit about what strength gains are. Um, don't worry, I have plenty more myths that I'm going to crack later on today before we leave uh, related to what we know about uh, muscle damage and muscle soreness. Um, I'm sure if some of the athletic trainers in the room, if there's any in the room, will be turning over by the time I get done. Um, so next, uh, talk about the phases of strength gains. And the first phase, oh, sorry about the purple again there. Uh, the first phase is what we refer to as the neural adaptation. And during the neural adaptation, there's a couple things that occur. Uh, the first thing is you have better synchronization of the way motor units are recruited. All right, so that's a really fancy way of saying the muscle knows how to contract now. And it plans things better. Maybe it, maybe it didn't know what a bicep curl was before. It knows what a bicep curl is now. It knows how it needs to recruit muscle fibers to respond to that stimulus. The second signal or second part of this response that you get is you get a decrease in inhibitory signals from the Golgi tendon organ. And to some extent, this point goes with the question that I asked at the beginning of class. And in the sense that the role of the Golgi tendon organ is to sense the state of the muscle. And more specifically, the, the, the objective of that structure is to prevent the tendon from ripping loose from the bone. And the first time you do an exercise that the body's not used to, you get a lot of output from the Golgi tendon organ. And that output is designed to prevent the tendon-bone interaction from being damaged. But as you do the, set, the training more often, the body realizes that, hey, this amount of skeletal muscle contraction isn't going to tear the tendon loose from the bone. And it gradually tapers down the output from the Golgi tendon organ. And that allows more muscle contraction to occur. A third effect is a reduction in antagonist coactivation. So based on the mini lecture, hopefully you picked up three terms related to movement, and that was the term agonist, which refers to the prime mover of, of emotion, the antagonist or antitagonist, which is the muscle which opposes that action, and the synergist muscle, which is an assisting muscle. And uh, the reality is that if I want to smoothly contract my bicep and smoothly bend my elbow, that motion is not entirely controlled by the bicep muscle. 
while I'm flexing my elbow, in addition to the bicep contracting, the tricep is also contracting. And that contraction of the tricep allows me to fine tune that motion and control it so it's a smooth, not jerky motion. Well, the first time you do an exercise, there's a lot of activation of the antagonist muscle. And again, that's the body's attempt to prevent in injury. And then as you go along, the body senses that um, this exercise isn't gonna hurt the muscle, so you get a reduction in the activation of the antagonist muscles. A fourth effect that we get during the neural adaptation is an increase in motor neuron firing frequency. And essentially what that means is you're sending more neural impulses to the muscle. And there's a proportional correlated relationship between the amount of impulses that you send and the strength of the muscle contraction. So the more impulses that the muscle gets, the greater the muscle strength will be. Okay. So these key four key effects, these during the first few weeks of training, uh, during the first few weeks of resistance training, what you'll see is in most cases you'll see uh, a pretty dramatic improvement in muscle strength. But that is usually not accompanied by an increase in muscle size. And that, so that all that change that you get in muscle strength is directly related to these changes in the way that the nervous system interacts with the muscle and the way that the nervous system coordinates the muscle movement. Once you get beyond neural adaptations, in order to get further strength gains, you actually have to do some things to the muscle. The primary way that's accomplished, and really the only way that's accomplished in humans under normal physiological conditions, is via muscle hypertrophy. And there's a couple types of uh, muscle hypertrophy. Uh, one form of hypertrophy is what we refer to as transient hypertrophy. And transient hypertrophy occurs uh, due to the actual contractions. And the process of contracting skeletal muscle increases blood flow to the muscle, which increases fluid accumulation in the muscle. And sometimes this is more obvious than others, but if you go and do a really hard bout of resistance exercise, especially in, uh, it's, uh, it's more pronounced usually in men than women due to uh, different hormones that are being activated. But uh, in general, what you may notice is uh, that your muscles appear bigger after a, uh, about, a bout of resistance training. And the reason that is is because of transient hypertrophy. Now that transient hypertrophy is, is merely associated with an increase in fluid levels inside the muscle. It's not really associated with an increase in muscle strength, although the muscle does appear to be larger. The type of hypertrophy that we're really interested in with training is what's referred to as chronic hypertrophy. Chronic hypertrophy means that uh, the muscle gets larger and remains larger. And in most cases, that increase in size is accompanied by an increase in the number of sarcomeres in the muscle. The more sarcomeres you have, the more actin, the more myosin you have, the more number of cross-bridge interactions you'll have, and the greater the muscle force you'll be able to generate. 
It's important to keep in mind, especially with transient hypertrophy, although the muscle is bigger, in most cases, if you looked at the muscle strength on a cross-sectional area, the muscle would actually be weaker because transient hypertrophy is not associated with an increase in muscle strength. So the muscle strength stays the same, but the muscles are bigger, which means effectively if you divided strength by size, the muscles on a per size basis would be weaker. Chronic hypertrophy is what we want because that's associated with an increase in size and an increase in muscle strength, which translates to an overall increase in muscle strength per size area. Within uh, chronic hypertrophy, really the response that uh, we're talking about, or the response if you wanted to narrow it down some more, would be fiber hypertrophy. Or muscle cell hypertrophy would be the same thing. And again, this is uh, an increase in fiber size that is also associated with an increase in the number of contractile units. All right, so how does this all work if we looked at it on a time course type of response? On the y-axis, we have the response, and on the x-axis, we have time in weeks. And typically, what you see is during the first few weeks of training, you see an increase in muscle strength, and that increase is being dictated by the neural adaptations that are occurring. And in most individuals, the neural adaptations, those plateau out at around three to four weeks of training. And again, during this phase, you'll see uh, progressive increases in muscle strength, and, uh, but those increases will not necessarily be associated with an increase in muscle size. And then when you look at muscle hypertrophy responses, in most cases it can take anywhere from five to six weeks or longer to initiate muscle hypertrophy. And certainly there's a lot of variation to this response. Uh, there are some individuals that could go and train for two weeks. They get the strength gains from neural adaptations and then a couple of weeks later they get uh, the gains from muscle hypertrophy. And so that plateau period between the neural adaptation and the hypertrophy adaptation, it could be very short or it could be very long. It's uh, highly dependent on the person's physiology. And like I said, everybody responds a little bit different to resistance training. That's why it's a little bit difficult as well just to say, here's a program that I designed. Everybody's going to do the exact same program. We're going to slightly alter the amount of weight, but everybody's doing the exact same program. The reality is that everybody's body responds a little bit differently to exercise. So the best way to maximize an adaptation is to design a unique program for each person. And if we laid muscle strength on top of these two responses, this is what you would expect to see. Uh, initially, we see some gains. Uh, we see a plateau period. And then we see some additional strength gains with the hypertrophy response. And again, this is a chronic hypertrophy. It's not a transient hypertrophy that's associated with fluid accumulation. So any questions on what's going on there? So what does fiber hypertrophy actually look like? Well, this picture on the left is a cross-section of uh, some skeletal muscle uh, taken from a muscle biopsy. If you look at it, you can see uh, the different muscle cells in there. They've been stained to look at different properties. 
And the key measurement that you would make would be cross-sectional area. And in this case, you would just take a ruler and measure on the slide, or on, excuse me, on the microscope, there's a special ruler you can use, and it measures cross-sectional area. And then if we took a muscle biopsy after training in the same individual, you might expect to see this kind of response. And this is under the exact same magnification. And in this response, you can see a dramatic increase in muscle cross-sectional area if we were just comparing these two muscle cells. And this is definitely a chronic hypertrophy response, and it's going to be associated with an increase in the number of contractile units and the muscle force output. All right, so any questions? What's going on there? So muscle hypertrophy. Yeah, so it's going to be a chronic hypertrophy that's going to be associated with an increase in the number of contractile units, which would effectively mean the muscle would be stronger. All right, so we've only talked about muscle hypertrophy as a means to increase muscle size uh, up until this point. There is another mechanism that you can use to increase muscle size and muscle strength, but which is called uh, muscle hy hyperplasia. Uh, anytime you see the prefix hyper, it always refers to increase, and uh, in this case, uh, plasia refers to number. And... Um, Pretty much what we know about people under normal physiological conditions is there is absolutely no muscle hyper hyperplasia that occurs in response to resistance training. Uh, however, uh, if you're doing some uh, resistance training with your cat at home, um, you could probably get some strength gains with hyperplasia. Um, I'm sorry if you have uh, chickens, rats, or pet mice at home, it's not going to be effective for them either. And there's a, there's a lot of reasons, physiological reasons, why hyperplasia doesn't occur. But um, the main reason is that it just takes so long for it to occur that it really isn't a, a very big contributor. Now, if you'll note, I keep saying under normal physiological conditions. So one of the telltale signs that someone is not under normal physiological conditions, i.e. they've done something to modify their normal physiology, I'll leave that to your imagination. Um, you could actually go in and look at the muscle cell, and you could. Uh, there's a way you can tell how old the muscle cells are. And if you saw someone that had only been training for a couple of months and they had a high amount of new muscle fibers in that muscle, that's a pretty good indication that uh, either they're just really abnormal or they have done something to modify their normal physiology. All right, so what do we know about different resistance training modes? Um, there are free weights, which I'm sure you're all familiar with. There are machine weights, and like I described last time, the principle behind machined weights was um, they were supposed to do a better job applying resistance over the course of the range of motion. And uh, believe it or not, uh, downhill running is actually a pretty effective stimulus for facilitating muscle strength gains. Um, now, if there was actually somewhere you could run downhill in Houston, um, that would probably be an effective thing. Um, there's obviously a mountain here. We don't have anything like that here. But um, the closest thing, if you want to do some downhill running, um, the way we do it in the lab is we just jack the back of the treadmill up on cinder blocks, which I'm sure is not very safe. But um, there is a treadmill in the rec center the last time I looked that can uh, be set to up to a 20% decline. 
And the only thing that you need to keep in mind if you do downhill running as a stimulus is you need to actually, if you say you could run at 10 miles an hour flat or at an up, up, uphill 10 miles an hour on the treadmill, you probably need to set it to at least 15 miles an hour to get the same kind of cardiovascular adaptation in addition to some um, muscle damage. Uh, it has a larger eccentric component to the muscle contraction. Uh, so if you look at flat running or level running on either a treadmill or over ground, the, um, the kinematics are completely different. So there is more of the bracing type of activity involved with it. All right, so what do we know about resistance training and fiber type? Uh, hopefully, based on what I talked about the last time, it's pretty clear that you can't change the physical composition of fibers that you have in the muscle. However, what you can do um, is you can change the properties of existing fibers that you have. And with respect to resistance training, you obviously you would want to enhance the fast twitch fibers that you already have. But another thing that you want to do is you actually want to enhance the intermediate fibers that you already have and help those fibers to look like fast twitch fibers. And in doing so, that would uh, translate to uh, helping you meet uh, your goal of increasing muscle strength or endurance or power. In most cases, based on the published literature with an appropriate uh, stimulus of progressive overload, you can see uh, pretty significant changes in uh, muscle fibers within about 15 to 20 weeks of initiating the exercise training program. Uh, if the training program is much less than that, you really don't see a whole lot of anything. All right, so that's a, that's a little bit about how the muscle responds to resistance training, but uh, to further understand how the response occurred, it's probably useful to talk about muscle soreness a little bit. And there's two types of muscle soreness. There's acute muscle soreness, which we'll talk about first, and delayed onset muscle soreness, which we'll talk about in a moment. And acute soreness is the pain that you feel in the muscle immediately after you finish exercising. In some cases, depending on the, the strenuous nature of the program you're doing, you might feel some pain during the actual program. Uh, usually this is described as a burning type of pain or a shooting type of pain, and it's associated to some extent with uh, the buildup of metabolic byproducts and some damage that occurs during the exercise itself. The primary metabolic byproduct that accumulates during um, um, continual resistance training bouts is uh, namely lactic acid. And the burning sensation that you feel in the muscle is strictly related to the accumulation of that lactic acid. So certainly the pain you feel immediately when you stop exercising, that's lactic acid driven. A second effect which contributes to the soreness is tissue edema, and specifically the tissue edema associated with transient hypertrophy. Yeah.
the problem with this type of exercise isn't really acid in the blood. Um, acid in the blood's not a problem at all because the body can deal with that. What it can't deal with is acid in the muscle. No. What what has to do? What's the? If you had to guess, what's the factor that determines how much acid builds up in your muscle? How intense the exercise is. The more, in, the higher the intensity, the faster the rate of skeletal muscle contraction required. The faster the rate of ATP production. Basically, signaling you're using anaerobic glycolysis. And that means that you're going to accumulate a lot of lactic acid in a very short period of time. That's going to exceed the body's ability to remove that lactic acid, and that's going to result in uh, what's described as burning the burning sensation you feel in the muscles. The good news about acute soreness, is, and specifically the burning, is that as long as you have blood vessels going to your muscle, which um, I'm pretty sure most of you have blood vessels going to your muscle, um, the, the, acid, the acid and the edema clear themselves fairly quickly. In most cases, uh, lactic acid, from the time you finish exercising, even if it peaks out really high, it usually clears the muscle in about 30 to 45 seconds. And at that point, there is no more lactic acid in the muscle. And uh, there's, there's a number of things we'll talk about in a moment, but that lactic acid has absolutely zero to do with the muscle soreness that you feel several days after exercise. That acid is a, is a consequence of the exercise you completed, and it's cleared very rapidly and has nothing to do with delayed onset muscle soreness. So that's just what I said, that the bloodstream clears the acid rapidly. All right, so that's the acute soreness response. Um, the, yeah. Oh, yeah, sure. All right, so that was the acute response. Uh, let's look at the delayed response a little bit here. And in the delayed response, uh, the delayed response is also known as the DOMS response, delayed onset muscle soreness. And the primary causes of delayed onset muscle soreness are a, the damage which is caused by eccentric exercise and the subsequent immune system response to that damage. And essentially, when you damage muscle or you damage any other type of tissue, the response the body has is pretty clear. Uh, there is inflammation. There is cells of the immune system entering the tissue compartment. They destroy the damaged tissue. The damaged tissue is replaced with healthy tissue. And then the function of the muscle is restored. But uh, what we know about the immune system response is that it's uh, pretty um, not accurate. So uh, what happens is the immune cells go into your muscle. They don't really know which cells are damaged and which cells are healthy. They rely on other things, other cells, to tell them which things are dead and which are not. But the problem is they don't do a very good job of tagging that because they're not very efficient. And the resultant effect is those immune cells destroy healthy tissue. And that de death of healthy tissue is what causes the delayed onset muscle soreness response. 
Um, on another note, um, I'm sure everybody's had a vaccination at some point in their life. Um, if you haven't, don't come anywhere near me, please. Um, but uh, if, you, if you've had a vaccination at some point in your life, uh, you may have noticed that they always give you it in your muscle. And you may wonder why that is. And you may even notice after you get the injection, your muscle usually feels sore for a couple of days. I'll give you a little hint. The needle had nothing to do with the soreness. And actually, the vaccine has nothing to do with the soreness. What they put in the vaccine has everything to do with the soreness. Uh, they actually load vaccines up with zinc. And uh, zinc that's uh, microscopically engineered to look like little stars. And when it gets injected, it basically tears the muscle up when it goes in. And you may say, well, why the heck would you want to do that? Well, why you would want to do that is because the virus antigens that are in the vaccine, you want to expose the immune system to that. The most effective way to expose them is to create tissue damage. And if you create tissue damage, that will recruit the immune system, expose them to the antigen, and then allow you to adapt to the antigen so you can no longer be contaminated by it. All right, so if we're back to, to talking about exercise-induced muscle damage, there's some key phases to the response. The first phase of the muscle damage response is structural damage. And that's actual disruption of the sarcomeres in the muscle. And the second is related to the subsequent immune system response. And the structural damage is what causes the acute soreness, among other things. And the subsequent immune system response is what's generally believed to be responsible for the secondary damage that you feel. All right, so we'll look at one more slide here, and then we'll call it a, a day for today. Um, the figure that's up there now shows sarcomeres of uh, healthy muscle. And so as you look at this, you may say, I have no clue what I'm looking at. But if you look at the dark black lines on there, those are the Z lines between adjacent sarcomeres. And you can see there's a couple sets of sarcomeres at the top of that slide. Now, if you look at the section of a muscle or a series of muscle that's been damaged, uh, so here you go in the spot, this is a sarcomere. Uh, there's the same sarcomere in a damaged muscle. So that particular structure that's circled there is uh, the Z line. And you can see that it's completely disrupted all the way down the length of that muscle. And that's a pretty good indication that you've had a significant amount of structural damage. That structural damage will definitely affect muscle strength until it's fully restored. So I think we'll close here, and then we'll pick up talking about delayed onset muscle soreness next Tuesday.